Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Second only to water, tea is the most consumed beverage in the whole world. But for something we drink so much, most of us know surprisingly very little about it. Ahead on Seasoned, we're going to get some lessons on tea from local experts. And later in the show, we'll talk to some chefs who share their ideas for incorporating tea into sauces, vinaigrettes, and my favorite, cookies and custards. We also talk to the farmers behind Hold Harmony Farm in Higginum about the benefits of herbal tea. But first, Tea 101. Philip Parda is a tea importer and educator. He's the co-owner of Savvy Tea Gourmet in Madison. Philip, welcome to Seasoned. Thanks for nerding out with us on tea. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. I go through phases in my life, Philip, where I love coffee, and then I start to feel gross about coffee. I think I lean towards more green tea in the morning than coffee. Is that probably a good idea? It's what I do, and it started (laughs) a long time ago, and I do it because of uh, a commitment I made a long time ago. I started hearing this new word I hadn't heard before. This is circa 1970, uh, antioxidants. And I said to myself, wow, that sounds so scientific. And, uh, you know, what could it possibly mean? It wasn't a common word back then. And so uh, then I started hearing about green tea in antioxidants. I said, green tea? What the heck is green tea? I had no idea. I had no idea. It had been around for thousands of years. I start hearing more about antioxidants, anti-aging, anti-cancer. And go, wow, you know, I'm a young guy. I should really do this. Yeah. That's what got me started. I went to a natural food store, got some green tea, decided I was going to drink it even if it was like medicine. Lo and behold, within a short time, I fell in love with the tea. I decided I wasn't going to get busy every day and lose track of what I was doing and not get my antioxidants. So I decided I was going to start every morning with green tea. It's become something I've done now for five decades. And um, it's amazing. Can you tell me what is tea, the actual definition of tea? So tea is the botanical name is going to be Camellia sinensis. That's what I thought too. I was going to use, that's what I was, I was going to say that phrase to you, but you know. yeah. And there's two major varieties <laughs> just to make it more complicated. So there's Camellia sinensis sinensis and Camellia sinensis asamica. So these are two major varieties. And from those, there are more cultivars, okay. but primarily all tea comes from Camellia sinensis. What about the people who are making tea from herbs or tea from uh, things you find in, in the wild, like, you know, like pine needles and things of that nature? Yeah. So there's a lot of different things that we can steep and make into a soup and it can be good for you. But the thing is that when you hear about health claims, uh, either newspaper, radio, TV, whatever, reading a book about the health benefits of tea. Sure. What they're referring to is camellia sinensis. Gotcha. Okay. So they're actually talking yeah. about like tea that we know, green tea, black tea, like actual tea leaves, right? Yeah. Yeah. People come into the shop sometimes and they'll say, oh, I'd like a mint tea. And I'll say, I, I know exactly what they mean they want. And I give them what they want. And if the opportunity presents itself, I'll mention, oh, by the way, you know, that's not green tea. 
because some people think it is. And um, that has to do with the tea paradigm we have in the West. I got to imagine when someone comes asking you for a tea like that, obviously you want to make the customer happy, but it's probably much like me working for a client and make, having this beautiful Wagyu ribeye steak and the yeah. client says, hey, can you make it well done for me? I know. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. Where was tea first discovered? Well, you know, discovered is an interesting word. In 2737 BC, there was this gentleman known as Shen Nong. Okay. He was the father of herbology, the father of agriculture in China. And his thing was going into the, the forest, the jungles, and searching for uh, plants that would be good for man. And he's credited in 2737 BC with the, be the first one that documented tea. Wow. But actually, you know, we know that man was using tea long before that, just hadn't really been documented. We don't know how far back it goes, but we do know that Homo sapiens came from Africa starting 50,000 years ago, 50, 60,000 years ago. And somewhere along the way, in the region of Southeast Asia, there's an area referred to as Mother Nature's primeval tea garden. And that's where, you know, we feel tea formed on earth. And at some point in time, man intersected with tea. And they started originally using it for, you know, medicinal properties, eating the tea leaves. It wasn't until quite some time later that people started realizing that you could steep out a beautiful, delicious broth out of the tea. I love the fact that you called it broth, because I guess in a culinary, you know, speaking, that is kind of what it is. In China, they'll call it, they call the leaves tea, and they call what we drink cha tong, tea soup. Tea soup. Uh, I'm definitely going to say that phrase today to my wife and see how that goes over. <laughs> so if all tea derives from one plant, is that is that what I'm understanding? Mm. That's right. So how do we get green tea and black tea and white tea? How do they differentiate? Well, you know, when you bite an apple and it turns brown, that's called oxidation. Well, somewhere along the line, people discovered that tea would oxidize uh, after you harvest the tea leaves. As a matter of fact, what they discovered was in order to keep it from turning bad, which was in their mind originally oxidation happening, you had to do something to the tea leaves, and we call it de-enzyming. You have to apply heat okay. so that the tea leaves don't change into black tea right away. Originally, people thought that was a bad thing. You know, when it was happening, turning into black, that was going bad. So they invented ways to keep the tea from oxidizing. So it's oxidation levels that create different tea types. So we have teas that are what we call unoxidized, like white and green teas. And we have teas that are fully oxidized, like black teas. In between, there's a category of tea we call partially oxidized. That's oolong tea. And even within the middle category called oolong, there can be jade, medium, and dark oolongs. So there's a wide variety. But oolong teas are kind of a special category because, um, you know, with some of the best white teas and green teas and even black teas, you use these little tender young spring shoots right to make these amazing teas from oolong teas are a little different oolong teas we wait until the tea leaves are fully developed and they're fully mature they're grown let's call them ripe it's like a ripe piece of fruit so the organic compounds inside the leaf have developed to the point where they're ready ready for the tea master to collect those tea leaves and 
put them through a process that has been developed over a long period of time that creates amazing aromas from oolongs. So oolongs, the, the importance of those are uh, these beautiful aromas that come from them. So it's kind of like poo-poo to uh, be adding anything to an oolong. I love cooking with tea constantly, and I do a lot of different things with it, from making a dressing to a sauce to even, for a long time, I actually used to brine a whole turkey for Thanksgiving in black tea because the tannins add a lot of great flavor to it, which is very, very nice and fun. Cooking for you with tea, what's a couple of the go-tos? There's just such a wide variety of things you can do with teas, from sauces to rubs to reductions to blends and soups and all different kinds of things. You know, eating tea leaves is what matcha tea is all about, for example. So matcha is um, just so versatile and so easy to use. So that's an easy place to start for people. And we carry, for example, a culinary matcha that's ideal for that, actually a little better than ceremonial matcha, you know, but uh, in terms of, you know, baking or uh, smoothies or this morning, my oatmeal, uh, (laughs) I put almond milk with my oatmeal. And in that almond milk, I put a little bit of uh, culinary matcha and uh, a drop of honey. I'm a beekeeper as well and and a gardener. Yeah. So um, I put the honey in with the matcha, with the almond milk and froth that. And then pour it over this oatmeal that I've prepared. And it, it's just an absolutely crazy, fabulous way to start your day. I mean, so healthy and beautiful. That sounds incredible. What a great way to start the morning off for sure. Hey, listen, Philip, one of the other things I think, uh, now that I have a tea expert in front of me and I can ask the questions I've always wanted to ask, can you define matcha for me? There's a lot of important things about matcha. Number one is that it comes from a special kind of tea plant. Okay. We call it tensha. Okay. This plant is shade grown for the last 30 days before the harvest. Why is that important? During that last 30 days when it's shade grown, the plant becomes stressed. And what it does is it reduces polyphenols in the tea, which you would think we would want, but it increases this incredibly valuable amino acid. It's called L-theanine. It is immensely good for us. It creates this flavor we call umami salty seaweedy flavor yes it's so beautiful and it has proven to lower blood pressure has a calming effect works in synergy with caffeine and tea to uh, make it enter our bloodstream further down our digestive tract which gives us a complete different effect from uh, from matcha when you normally throw your tea leaves away after you're steeping your green tea or whatever tea you have with those tea leaves, you're throwing away what we call non-water soluble vitamins and nutrients that are locked into the solid part of the tea leaf. They never come out. But with matcha, because it's stone ground into fine little pieces, when you drink the matcha, you consume the little particles of tea leaf, right? Okay. Your body breaks them down, you digest them. And as a result, you pick up not only the steeped out benefits, but you also pick up extra vitamin E, beta carotene, lots of other vitamins, nutrients especially things like L-theanine. And so for someone who is a, a beginner with tea and they want to start drinking matcha, how do you recommend that? It's just steeping it in water, just mixing it? What's the best way to drink matcha for a beginner? I would try to get someone to, to try a tea that we blend called Imperial Jade. It's a whole leaf green tea, but we blend matcha with it. And what that does is it makes it steepable. Normally with matcha, what we do is you use a matcha bowl and a matcha whisk, just like it's done in the uh, Japanese tea ceremony, right? So you'll put um, a little bit of matcha into your matcha bowl and add about that much water. Yeah. And we froth with a special bamboo whisk. It creates a foam 
That foam is really important. You add a little bit more water again and you froth again into more foam. Then you drink out of your matcha bowl. Out of the bowl. You get that foam on your lips intentionally. And what happens as you sip away and you enjoy that beautiful matcha, you swirl your bowl so you get it all. And as you do that, that coating is drying on your lips. When you lick your lips, you get this beautiful burst of salty seaweed umami. Yeah, fabulous. So that's a beautiful process, but we're not inclined to do that every morning. And for someone just getting into it, it's a bit of a barrier. But with this tea that I was mentioning, the Imperial Jade, you know, what we do is we make it for this reason because it makes it, and I have it many mornings. I have about a lineup of maybe eight different green teas I rotate. And different. I wake up in the morning, you know, like, oh boy, which tea today? Because each one's distinctly different with its own character. Yeah. But on that rotation is Imperial Jade. Yeah. Because why? Oh, it's wonderful. And uh, you, you get a great experience with it. I definitely want to talk about matcha because the popularity of matcha is growing so much now. And I'm glad to kind of have that breakdown of it. I appreciate that. I got to tell you, when we first opened our shop in 2008, I was begging people to drink matcha. Now it's amazing. Over the period of time since we've been doing, actually doing a tea business, right? We have developed this community of people that started with small amount of tea knowledge that are now, it's just so uplifting for me to see them, the teas they're drinking, the appreciation they have, the way it's changed their life. Oh my gosh, it, it is gratifying. Really, really super. Now, listen, Philip, when you started out, you were somewhat of an evangelist for Chinese teas because yeah, yeah Americans didn't know mm. much about them. What do you wish Americans knew about the Chinese teas you love so much that might help them, I don't know, deepen their appreciation? Yeah, well, that's an easy one because it's what got me way back when, circa 1970. When I started drinking green tea, I did it, of course, you know, those antioxidants, right? That's what I wanted. The thing that really started to make me amazed with tea was when I realized that there were different types of green tea. People went to great lengths to shape tea leaves in different ways to create not just different appearance, but different cup characteristics. From famous growing regions, you know, just like wines, right? Wines from these incredible terroir around the, around the world, right? Now people take them and they process them. Well, this is what happened with the tea leaves. Once you start looking at the shapes of these leaves and why are these like this, it's just unbelievable what you begin to discover as far as tea character. And so that is why I'm saying I'm so gratified by these customers in our tea community because they've learned this and I've seen them just flourish. You know, they just like, oh, my God, this is not just incredibly healthy. This is embellishing. I mean, this makes your life. It's like, you know, bird watching or music or fine food. This is an enriching thing. You can drink as much as you want (laughs) and it's still good for you. That was Philip Parda, co-owner of Savvy Tea Gourmet in Madison. Philip is a tea importer and educator and hosts tea tastings online. Our next guest's family-owned tea company is one of the oldest in the whole country. Simpson & Vale started as a mail-order tea business in New York City in 1929. The Heron family bought the company in 1978 and eventually relocated to Brookfield in the 90s. Today, the Heron kids have taken over the family business from their parents who've retired. Jim Heron Jr. is the co-owner along with his sister Cindy. She's an herbalist, and Jim is a master tea blender. I asked Jim how he trained his palate to taste and blend teas. Yeah, it helps if you like taste stuff separately. 
after a while you'll you'll know what goes into a blend. I sometimes try and think of what I want in a blend and how it will taste. And then I'll play around with different teas or berries or whatever. Like the proportions, you'll pick like three or four teas that you want in a blend and then you'll play with the proportions. And sometimes that works out and other times you're like, ah, scratch it and back to the beginning. Do you remember what your first blend was when you were like, you made it and you're like, this is it. This is delicious. I have accomplished this. I've made a tea blend that is tasty. English breakfast would probably be one of the ones I remember the most of. We were buying a blend from somebody, from an importer, and he ran out. And I'm like, oh, well, we can't be out of English breakfast. So I made up this blend, and it's six different teas. I was really proud of it. I was like, this is really good. And like, I was surprised. That was many years ago. But yeah, still have the same blend, still using it. So I, I love that. I mean, because... It's, it's so funny how things can change over time. I know even making a great sauce or something that I've made a thousand times, it's always a little bit different. Well, that's the thing with tea now because it's agricultural. So every year, those six teas, they could just be tasting just a little bit differently. Is there a little margin for error on your end of it because of dealing with something that grows? I guess our customers expect a little change, not too drastic. Lipton does it differently. They, they blend all their teas to taste exactly the same. How is loose tea different from what's in those you know, tea bags you buy from the grocery store? So those tea bags, they've been cut down into fine powder or ground down. And sometimes you're not getting the best leaf. Sometimes what they'll do is if it's machine picked, they'll just cut the top of the tree. So you'll get the tea leaves plus the branches. So that'll give you like the woody taste. And that's actually the stock from the wood. Oh, interesting. Depending on the company, it depends. There's good companies out there. There's others that are just, they're just interested in mass producing. I tell people all the time when it comes to black peppers, my kind of go-to example of this, you know, when you buy pre-ground black pepper in the grocery store, and again, people have to do it. I understand. When you buy that, that could have been ground 15, 20 years ago and sits in a big vat and they refill these containers and send them out to the store. I mean, it's tea bags like that as well. It's just, it could be old. It could be not as fresh. I, I got to imagine the shelf life stability on it can't be what it would be on a fresh tea like this. That, that's correct. Yeah. The, you're, you're not guaranteed a freshness. You don't know when the tea was picked, ground, bagged, and how long has it been in storage. You just don't know. Do you ever get like requests for exclusive blends for people? We do special blends for people. So we'll try and match blends or if they have something they have in mind, we'll try and match it. Uh, but we, yeah, we do. We've got a little black book out in the front in the store where we write people's names down with their blends and they'll just call up and we'll pick it up. Uh, we'll make it for them. Well, maybe you can help with this because this is the, the, the age old question when it comes to tea. True or false, tea has more caffeine than coffee false per cup per cup true per pound so a pound of coffee you get 50 cups for a pound of tea you get 200 oh so if you drink more of it obviously then you have more yeah volume versus yeah, yeah, weight. i yeah. get you well <laughs> so, tea is always less per cup okay all right and now does green tea have more than black tea does the different types of tea have different varying degrees of caffeine oh sure sure uh actually white tea has the most caffeine and that's because they're picking the leaves at the top of the branch where the caffeine's concentrated. So white has the most followed by black oolong and then green. Green's usually the least amount of caffeine. Interesting. 
So when a person buys a package of tea from Simpson and Vale, um, there's instructions for steeping it. And do certain teas steep for a different number of minutes or a different temperature? Can a tea be oversteeped? And can you fix it if you oversteep it? Uh, yeah, there's different temperatures for tea. Like we tell people black tea, depending on your taste, three to five minutes. Three minutes is usually enough at boiling water. Green tea, don't boil the water. If you do, it'll turn out bitter. Uh, back in college, my parents sent me green tea bags. And I, of course, boiled the water, drank it. I'm trying to stay up at night doing finals and stuff. And uh, I was like, God, this stuff is awful. What are we selling? <laughs> then later on, I find out, no, Jim, it's just you. It's just your fault. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, well, if you do oversteep it or if you pour the boiling water into the green tea, is there any way to bring it back once you've done that? Or is it just start over? No, your quick fix is to add some cold water to it right away. Okay. Just to bring the temperature down real fast. That's my quick fix because I've done that still. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Same thing with, you know, if something's too hot, add something cold to it. I mean, <laughs> rocket science, Chef Plum, good thinking. <laughs> um, so how do you teach people to really taste tea? Like if they want to get everything out of it, the experience, I mean, do you have to get like in a Zen state of mind, light some candles, sit down Indian style and just get in the place for it? Yeah, yes and no. You, you want to just try and block out everything and just concentrate on what you're tasting. Um, I'm sure it's the same with you. You just can't be interrupted all the time while you're trying to make a recipe or I tell people that but no one listens to me <laughs> they don't listen we're joined by Jim Heron Jr he is the co-owner along with his sister Cindy of Simpson and Vale in Brookfield one of the oldest tea companies in the country Jim and I are discussing the zen mindset we have to be in to taste tea appropriately and I'm, I'm saying that in jest but I read that tea leaves get better with age Jim is that true it depends usually we tell people like two years from the date picked is good but if you store it in a like even vacuum seal or in a in just in a tin in the shelf where it's trying to keep out light and air uh it can last a lot longer we had a customer his dad passed away and he he was cleaning out the closet and he said oh i'll keep this tea it was six years old and he said it was the best cup of tea he's ever had wow. and that's just because his father stored it correctly so sometimes tea can age well, but you really have no clue if it's going to until you try it later on. What's the first tell that, hey, this tea has gone bad? Uh, if it's like flat, if you taste it and there's like really nothing there. If you're tasting an Assam, you're, you're expecting that bold taste and maltiness to it. And if it's kind of just flat, it's gone. How many cups of tea are you drinking every day now, Jim? I'm probably just drinking four or five. Oh, okay. That's good. That's that's just just four or five. <laughs> Two or three cups of coffee in the morning, too. <laughs> I love it. You're an animal, Jim. You're an animal. What's a tea that is kind of something that would be an easy move into doing tea instead of coffee, you think? Stay with the black tea. I would go with Assam. Like I said, it's really a bold tea or any breakfast teas because that'll have a mix of Assam and Salon and maybe Darjeeling. Okay, hang on, Jim. We said a bunch of words there that I got to define. Assam, Darjeeling, are these types of tea or? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, they... it's great. I love it. I'm sitting under the learning tree again. I love it. Uh, Assam and Darjeeling are from India and they're close. They're separated by a river. And Assams are low grown teas and those are all 
bold, strong teas, and almost everybody uses them for breakfast blends because they can stand up to milk, sugar, other teas like okay. that. And Darjeeling's your finer teas grown in the Himalayan mountainside, and those have like a citral taste to it, like a little lemon taste, and yeah. very fine. They're so close, but they're so different. That was Jim Heron, co-owner of Simpson & Vale in Brookfield. Later in the hour, the chef from the Charles in Wethersfield talks us through a recipe for a lovely tea vinaigrette. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we'll talk to local farmers who make beautiful teas from the herbs they grow on their farm. The safest form of herbal medicine is an herbal tea. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We have had all kinds of farmers on this show. Vegetable farmers, kelp farmers, oyster farmers. Today, we're adding tea farmers to the list. Stacy Wood and David Soul own Whole Harmony Farm in Higginum, where they grow most of the herbs they use in their line of herbal teas and tonics. Stacy is trained as a traditional Chinese herbalist. Before she was a farmer, she'd consult with clients using herbs to treat everything from headaches to heartburn. A course called Farm to Pharmacy convinced the partners they needed to start a farm and grow the herbs they consider medicine. The goal basically is to, to get the herbs in you, you know, to add to your diet. If it's not through tea, if you're just not a tea drinker, you're like I don't like warm liquids, you know, and maybe even iced tea doesn't work. So you can do a tincture, you can do capsules. But the getting those things into your bloodstream, I've always been taught that using a liquid, uh, getting it through a liquid is obviously the best way to do it. Is that true? Yeah, the, definitely. Um, it's more uh, bioavailable for your body. So it'll get into your bloodstream quicker. The quickest out of kind of the liquid extracts is alcohol, like the alcohol tinctures, but they're much stronger than a tea. The safest form of herbal medicine is an herbal tea. Okay, so how is herbal tea different from the tea we learned about in our first segment? Stacy explains. What we are specifically into is herbal plant medicine. We actually call it botanical infusions, but it's the same premise where we're taking dried herb that we grew and we put it in boiling water and we steep it 
for 10 minutes covered. During that process, the boiling water for our particular tea, because it di it's different with others, but our tea, boiling water is critical because it releases the essential oil in that plant. The essential oil in that plant is also known as the plant's immune system. That's the medicine or the magic, so to speak. That is what's going to help bring you back into balance. Tea almost can be more used like a, I don't know, like a, like a technique more so than an actual thing. So if you have herbs, you're going to make a tea out of them. That's almost like a, I don't know, it's like a verb. Yeah, I was going to say it's more of a verb than a noun. Yeah. Absolutely. I like ginger tea because I like the way it makes my belly feel. Run down some of the herbs that you work with and what they help humans with, or maybe even some of our canine friends. Mm. My sister has to give her dog tea because mm. she's crazy. <laughs> your, your sister or the dog? Both. <laughs> gotcha. There's definitely different classes of herbs. A couple of the common ones we hear are carminatives. So like your ginger tea, and that would be cinnamon, cayenne pepper. A lot of the spices are carminatives. There is nervines, which basically is anything that will work on your nervous system, either repairing into the, the cellular sense, repairing nerves, or even calming or relaxing nerves. So those are mostly like your stress teas. And then there's, there's a couple other classes, some tonic herbs and vulneraries, there's a couple others, but those are the main ones we usually stick with. On the farm, some of the main herbs that we grow, Tulsi Rama, or Tulsi is probably our number one herb, which is also called holy basil. It is a basil, so it would grow similar to like your, your typical Genovese basil that you were going to grow in the garden. It looks, and maybe even flavor-wise, is more like a Thai basil without the spice. There's some like citrus notes in it, you know, like a little bit of some peppermint notes. And we use it mostly in the base of a lot of our teas. I would say 75% of our teas use Tulsi as the base. Um, another herb we grow a lot of is lemon balm. And lemon balm is one of those nervines. It's calming, relaxing, and of course gives that wonderful lemon flavor to a tea. So if you have a, maybe a, a Tulsi and a lemon balm mixed together and you make a tea out of it, it almost tastes similar to a green tea with a little bit of lemon added to it. But it's going to be calming and relaxing. Another herb we grow is skullcap. And this is also another nervine from the mint family. And it almost looks like a mint plant, but it's a little more bushy and has these beautiful purple flowers. It does grow wild along the Connecticut River. We cultivate it. We usually do not wildcraft. We try to cultivate all our herbs in the field. And most of it is started in the greenhouse and then transplanted out into the field. Another herb we grow is nettles, actually stinging nettles. Uh, one of the weeds that most people probably try to get rid of out of the yards or growing around their compost piles, because it will sting you. Um, but this is would be more like a, a tonic herb. It's loaded in vitamins and minerals. It has an unusually large amount of chlorophyll compared to other green leafy herbs. It's really good um, helping the, your body detox through urination. It really helps with inflammation. There's even some natural paths that may use this herb in its fresh form and literally whip your arm or your leg and it will sting, but it will help the inflammation. Wow. I remember as a kid uh, camping and we would always make a tea at night on the campsite with dandelion flowers and like, was it pine? I think from a pine tree, like we put them in there and, and boil it and then we would drink it. And it was supposed to like calm you down and make it easier to relax you. You still get some nutrients from it. I mean, I kind of thought it was all just like nonsense, but apparently it's not. Dandelions are actually very good for our liver. They help take some of the pressure off. 
So think of our liver in herbal medicine as the kitchen sink drain. Everything has to pass through that, right? And the liver's number one job in the body is to get rid of chemicals. If we're not eating a whole plant, healthy, organic, grass-fed diet, the liver has a lot of work to do. So our job, we have this beautiful tea called our good riddance tea, but it's loaded with the class of herbs that Dave was talking about. Nettles is in there, the nourishing, but also draining one, but then dandelion root and burdock root. So they help the liver do its job better in a soft, gentle way. Because the last thing our liver needs, and mind you, this is all in herbal medicine, not in modern medicine. Um, But the last thing our liver needs is more inflammation, more friction. So going at a slow, nutritive pace versus a a purge, a quick, fast purge is always better. Hey, listen, as a chef, professional chef for 25 years, trust me, my liver needs all the help it can get. Yeah, (laughs) noted. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not a professional chef, and my liver's shot. Um, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about this dandelion and, and and liver. I had my gallbladder taken out, and I had an herbalist say, "I wish we had met ten years ago. I could have saved you." And then she was like, "Now you need some dandelion." Mm-hmm. But in hearing you talk about all of this last year, I felt, at least in my general community, a lot of folks were turning to something to boost their immune system, Mm -hmm. right? We had this pandemic. We had no idea what it was going to happen. And my friend, uh, Lori Cochran of the Westport Farmer's Market, she gave me a Tulsi plant and I started making tea from it and I even gave it to my kids. So what were you seeing during the pandemic? Were you concocting different teas? And if so, what were they? Yeah, we have um, a tea called the Immune Builder and the base is Tulsi. So your friend was definitely right on. Um, it has echinacea. There's actually two different kinds of echinacea. Um, cinnamon, ginger, cardamom, lemongrass, and yarrow, peppermint. And there's astragalus. Sorry, I forgot that one too. Um, and elderberry. Sorry about that. Thank you. <laughs> we do grow elderberry. We do grow our echinacea. Echinacea is probably one of the number one known immune stimulant herbs. It's also called the cone flower. So many people may have those growing in front of their house and may not even know that that is actual echinacea and it's a medicinal plant. Actually, you can find out very quickly its medicinal powers by eating any part of the plant. If you even the petals, the stems, the leaves, we use the roots, which are the strongest, but all parts of the plant are medicinal. But when you eat them, your mouth uh, immediately it will begin to tingle and you will salivate a little bit. And that is the, the simulation of your immune system that those reactions from the plant cause your immune uh, system to be stimulated. And you can feel that right away because we get that a lot, you know, how fast the herbs work. They all work instantly. Same as when you eat food is doing something instantly in your body. Just some of them are much stronger than others and you can feel them right away. I do want to mention one other thing. There's a funny fact we were talking about dandelion. So we do not grow dandelion on our farm. We actually buy that one. It's one of the areas we do have to buy. We tried to grow it. I could not get it to germinate. And even the ones that germinated, they just weren't happy out in the field. It doesn't want to be pampered at all. And starting the season, a perfectly you know, watered tray in the greenhouse at perfect temperature and everything did nothing for them. Where vegetable plants, tomato plants in the greenhouse, instant germination, they're growing perfectly. The antelion refused. I probably would have had better luck if I just threw them out in my yard, the seeds, and they probably would have grown better. Next, we wanted to know how the process of growing medicinal herbs works. How might it be different from vegetable farming? 
We do grow majority of the bases of our teas. In, the, in this about three acres, you actually don't need as much room for a lot of the herbs and you would uh, vegetable farming. So what we'll do is we'll, Tulsi for an example, we'll plant, it's usually about 100 feet rows, 10 rows or so, about 1,000 feet. And then we can get multiple harvests off of it. So maybe, you know, when it first gets fully grown, just about ready to flower, we'll harvest it. Um, and what we do then is we bring it into a drying room and they go on these big drying racks. All that's needed is a fan in a dry room, no sunlight. Uh, sunlight will deter, can deteriorate some of the, the medicinal qualities. And as long as you keep a good airflow over it, it'll begin to dry. From there, we, it's a process called uh, garbling which is basically we run the herbs, the dried herbs over screens, and that breaks it up into little pieces. And then it goes into to bags. We can then store it, you know, for up to two years in our warehouse. We usually end out, we usually end up running out of everything that we grow and have to supplement from other herb farmers. But then when we put our tea together, we actually put them in a jar, we hand layer them. Um, and then basically to reactivate the medicinal qualities when you pour that hot water on them, you know, and it steeps out those qualities, and that's how you get the medicinal qualities back out of the herb. Sometimes, um, if we go to a tea show, and there will be some people saying, you know, what you do is not tea. Tea has to be either green tea or black tea from the a, a real tea plant. Like they'll they'll say these aren't tea plants; these herbs. Technically, it's not from a, I don't know, a tea plant. These are herbs that we're steeping, making an herbal tea out of. Yeah, we're definitely unique. We are the only ones having tea in this form. When we started over 10 years ago, nobody was doing anything even remotely close to us. And we did get a lot of people that were poo-pooing us until they tried it. And then they were like, wow, this is fantastic. This is beautiful. What is this? They were curious. And then we were able to start communicating. Food is medicine. What is your take on using tea in food? Is there a tea that works particularly well with a food, you think, or might go well with a food? You know, because I've been in the restaurant industry and because we love plants, tea is an easiest way to get it to for people to drink it. But being creative, we make herbal iced tea popsicles. We made, if you scroll on our Instagram, you're going to see an absolutely stunning baklava made from hand using our heart and soul tea mix. We do a vegan elderberry nice cream with rose petals and elderberry and cinnamon and ginger and clove. We do tons of herbal craft cocktails. I mean, tons and tons and tons of those. This has been very enlightening. I feel like I learned a whole lot just sitting here. And finally, I know why those dandelions were in my tea when I went camping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stacy and David, thank you so much. It's really nice to meet you guys. Thanks for having us. That was Stacy Wood and David Soule. They grow herbs for teas and tonics at Whole Harmony Farm in Higginham. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, two chefs share their favorite ways with tea. I would have to say the cookies because no one expects it. And sometimes it's a sandwich cookie with a little mascarpone scented with tea. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. To a chef, tea is not just an aromatic drink. It's an ingredient. Chefs have one essential question for every single delicious plant they encounter. What can I make with this? Yeah, so I put that question out on Facebook, and several chef friends replied. First, Tom Caldy is the executive chef at the Charles in Old Weathersfield. We Zoomed while he was on break from the kitchen. He talks us through his hibiscus rose tea vinaigrette, which he uses over roasted beets. It almost started out as like a gastrique type thing, but uh, realized that I could actually still get the aromatic from the tea as well as, you know, still have the oil in there to make it more of a traditional vinaigrette. Yeah, really, it's very, uh, even for, you know, the home cook, it can easily be adjusted. The one we're going to be talking about today has hibiscus and rose, but um, you can even use Earl Grey, whatever your your favorite uh, tea is, and kind of run with it. I made it first time in Las Vegas when actually a lady used to uh, make hamaica, which is like a sweet and sour tea made from hibiscus. And I was like enamored by it. And I was like, okay, so how can I do this and, you know, kind of apply it to a dish? And uh, we added the rose in there, um, a little bit more acidity than that with earthiness of the beets. Typically, I accompany it with goat cheese and maybe some some sort of toasted nut, like hazelnuts, for instance. But once again, I mean, that's just one one aspect. I mean, you know, you see a lot of people doing smoking and brining. Tea has a, a lot of functions. I mean, it's um, not only for flavor, but also, you know, the aromatics that you get from it. It's almost like a, a version of a white truffle where, you know, um, sometimes maybe the flavor is subdued a little bit, but the aromatics are really what you're what you're going for. Yeah, totally. You know, for Thanksgiving time, before I started frying turkeys, I would always brine my turkey in a sweet tea mixture, actually, like like Southern style sweet tea. I let it sit in it for about 12, you know, 14 hours. And yeah, nice. it adds a lot of flavor and those tannins really add some uh, flavor to it as well. How do you personally, like we talked about smoking and obviously making the vinaigrette, but cooking with tea, what's something like some applications you use it in aside from, uh, you know, making the vinaigrette? Uh, once again, I mean, sometimes it's easier to just treat the tea as you kind of normally would. I mean, you know, some sugar and uh, base liquid. I mean, that can be, you know, something that just gives, again, the aromatics to a dish could be a finishing uh liquid on a fish dish, for instance, um, depending on how light or heavy you go. That's one of the coolest things. There's so many varieties of teas that really the possibility is endless. You could pair it just as easily with duck or, you know, any game meat uh, as you can, you know, seafood and uh, and other things. But, you know, what we're always trying to do is just extract the most flavor out of anything that we we can. And uh, tea obviously is a very concentrated version of it. So it's um, still a great, great tool to have. And, you know, and then, like I said, there's the the smoking of things that, um, you know, imparts that, that subtle hint of whatever it is that you're using. Right. If you're using hibiscus or green tea, it kind of adds those hints to it. You can make it so, but I mean, it's never overwhelming. So just having this, you know, lovely nuance to, uh, to whatever dish you have, you know, really kind of makes someone say, mm, what is that? Uh, you know, that question mark of, this seems familiar, but I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> so. You know, I've actually made almost like a Berblanc using tea before where I would reduce down some black tea. I'm not talking like reduce to a cuisson, but like just reduce yeah. it down and then mount it a little bit, which means to add butter to it. And then it comes out really nice to put on top of actually a roast chicken is how I did it. I did a really simple, nice herby roast chicken and just reduced some tea, a little bit of butter, and it made a really cool sauce. Definitely not like a beurre blanc, but the same idea. No, absolutely. See, that's one thing I haven't thought of. This, this is why we have these conversations. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The dish that we're talking about today, just run through it for me really quick. I probably should have just start with that. This beet dish with this vinaigrette. Tell us about that a little bit. You know, salt roasting beets is a really good route to go. It has, you know, kind of ionizes the, the salt. So the salt penetrates into the beet and you kind of have this internally seasoned uh, beet to begin with. So for the actual vinaigrette, uh, what I start by doing is taking the vinegar. Uh, in this case, I use a, a white balsamic that's the lower on the acidity side. Put down the stove with a little bit of sugar 
and then pour it over the rose and hibiscus tea. Uh, let it steep for just maybe five or seven minutes, then cool it, and then uh, basically just emulsify it like you would a normal vinaigrette. Keeping it really simple, this this recipe doesn't have too many items in it, and that's intentional so that you can kind of get that you know, herbaceous sweet quality of the actual tea itself. And you know, with beets having that earthiness as well, I mean, it's it's almost like this umami type bomb of you know earthiness, tea, everything, um, and then the things that you can accompany the actual salad with, uh, the cheeses, the nuts, you know, you're just kind of bumping that up a little bit. So it's, uh, yeah, tried, tried it one day and um, kind of worked and uh, started doing it after that. So I love roasted beets. I'll tell you what, what a great dish for people who are home cooks to make at home. Tom is actually uh, giving us the recipe. It's going to be posted at ctpublic.org slash seasoning. I can't wait to do it. Chef, Final tips for anybody making this at home. Are there any mistakes that you made that you've learned from, or is it pretty straightforward? The one thing you might want to watch is the amount of time you're actually steeping it. The tannins, the bitterness can kind of come out if you oversteep it. So uh, whatever tea you're using, I mean, even if you look at the back of the box or whatever it may be, you know, the key is just trying to keep it in that that reasonable time frame where, you know, you're not pulling out all the lesser qualities that you'd like to pull out of the, uh, the bitterness of the actual tea itself. But um, other than that, I mean, you know, if you can brew a cup of tea, there's plenty of things you can do with just that. So thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Bum. I appreciate it. I also talked to Cheryl Stair. She is the caterer extraordinaire behind the art of eating and a legend in Bridgehampton, New York. Thanks for joining us and sharing your ideas for cooking with tea, Cheryl. You're welcome. Glad to be here. You make a peanut sauce or you use tea in a peanut sauce. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's just the standard peanut sauce that people put on noodles or grilled chicken, but I change it up depending on what else is going on on the menu. And it's usually too thick. So I, besides all of putting mirin and other things in there, sometimes I thin it with a beautiful jasmine tea for those, those notes or there's a tea that I get in the village at this tea shop called Sun's Organic Tea, and I get what they call fun tea, and it's got orange and marigold and mango. Sounds delicious. Oh, my gosh. It's so delicious. And I mix it with a little Lapsang Chushang for a tiny bit of smoky flavor, then thin the peanut sauce with that. Wow. You're absolutely right. Sometimes those peanut sauces are way too thick. And you know, I've never thought of actually putting tea in there to thin it out. But wow, that makes a lot of sense. And it doesn't really even dull the flavor. If anything, you're adding a lot more of those floral notes kind of in the background, aren't you? Yes. Floral, sometimes it's a little spicy, depending on the tea. And not just flavor, there's a depth from the tea also. You'd also mentioned about doing some custards and cakes and cookies and stuff. Can you give us an example of, you know, something you might put tea in as far as like a dessert? Well, we do a lot of cookies with teas. We make shortbread cookies with lavender tea, chamomile tea, Darjeeling, really any kind of tea, anything you want, chai. And do you use the tea kind of in place of the water aspect on the recipe? No, we infuse it into the butter. Oh, okay. Now we're getting to the nitty gritty here. Talk about infusing it into the butter. How do you do that? We just melt butter in a pan with a little, with the tea, very, very low heat. When you can smell it and taste it a little bit, then it's, we just let it cool and strain it and then let that butter set up again and then use it just like we would use any butter. Cheryl, I feel like you always have some kind of trick up your sleeve. What's a great idea? Actually, a chef that worked with us, he was doing it and then forget it. Once you do it once, you just start figuring out what else can it go in? How else can I do this? And I just need a client to say something to me like, I love Darjeeling tea. You say, oh, okay. (laughs) 
I have an idea. Yeah, or you could infuse it into milk and make a custard for Boston cream pie, but it's oh yeah, it's switched up because that flavor's in there. And of course, you can use matcha and you could probably do like an Earl Grey creme brulee or something like that. Earl Grey, the favorite tea of all. Um, yes, definitely you can do. And we've done creme brulees with teas also. This is fantastic. Now, obviously, to smoking with tea, you know, as chefs, we all talk about smoking with tea, using green tea, using black tea, making that little pouch. Can you talk about that for a second? Because I know you've done that a couple of times. Usually we just put it in cheesecloth and it's damp and Mm -hmm. put it in with other wood, too. I I usually don't use just tea because I personally have had a hard time keeping it going. Especially when it's wet. It's a pain in the butt to keep going. I usually add little wood chips to it as well. But that tea does add some pretty fun notes to, uh, especially with duck, I think. Oh, duck, bluefish. It works with bluefish. Fruity teas I like with bluefish. I haven't used it on any vegetables. I'm sure you you could. Works great on those. And what do you think is your favorite thing to make with tea? It's such a weird question to ask chefs and people who work professionally because it's picking a favorite thing you make with such an odd ingredient. You really got to think back to all the things you've made with it in the past. But do you have one? My favorite thing to make with tea is a beautiful pot of properly steeped tea, <laughs> <laughs> which is a whole ritual that I enjoy very much. But I would have to say the cookies because no one expects it. And sometimes it's a sandwich cookie with a little mascarpone scented with tea. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say it's the cookies. I love the idea of doing it with cookies and steeping it with butter. That's 100% going to go in my repertoire. And I recommend you guys at home try that as well. Cheryl, I can't thank you enough for your time and taking a few minutes. I know how busy you are and hanging out with me and, and chatting a little bit about tea and baking and smoking and putting it in custards. I love this conversation. Thanks, Plum. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. That was Cheryl Stair, co-owner of Art of Eating Event Planners and Catering in Bridgehampton, New York. Plum, if you end up baking some of Cheryl's favorite tea cookies, you know exactly what to do. Bake an extra batch for me. Who wouldn't love a tea-infused butter cookie situation? I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. I am not sharing any cookies with you, Marisol. Sorry. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Zakina Collier and Joseph Vasquez. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.